I just want to introduce myself to everybody. I'm a practicing rheumatologist in Dallas, and I've been highlighting important topics in rheumatology and promoting excellence in patient care through social media. So you can read my blogs, watch my videos, follow me on Twitter. My views are my own. And today I'm so delighted to serve as moderator for this panel of women leaders in rheumatology. And this is a session about um, finding resilience and leadership in the time of the pandemic, as well as how to navigate the virtual world. So with me today are Dr. Maureen McMahon, Dr. Yvonne Schur, and Dr. Laura Geraldino Padilla. So the pandemic ex has exposed so many weaknesses in our healthcare systems, and it's really revealed the vulnerability of women in medicine. And I wanted to discuss some of the challenges with you that we've faced during the pandemic, um, particularly when it came to medical practice, your careers, and also your home life, and how you overcame them. So one of my first questions that I have, and everybody's itching to know, is that in your medical practice, what has been the most difficult issue you dealt with? I think there have been a number of difficult issues in the in the past year, but I think um, you know one of the challenges has been um, getting pa getting patients into the office. Um, so I think telehealth, um, I will say actually I think has benefits and drawbacks. Um, benefits certainly, I have patients who live far away or have a difficult time coming into the office. So there are some patients that I think I've almost seen more regularly than I had pre-pandemic. Um, but with that, I have a lot of concerns as well. Um, you know, I have many patients who I really haven't been able to do a physical exam on for, you know, the last year and a half. And I worry that that we're missing things um, that could be going on. And, you know, it's sometimes hard to make treatment decisions. You know, when you have a patient um, who's complaining of joint pains, you like to be able to feel the joints, see what's going on, see if there could be another cause. And it's really difficult to do that over Zoom. Um, and I have several patients as well who have been very cautious and concerned about coming into the office, but also concerned about going to get labs. And so, you know, again, I worry that we're missing things uh, in our patients. So um, it's starting to get a little better. I have patients who are, you know, venturing out for the first time to get some of their lab draws. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, all these things will kind of take care of themselves in the next couple of months. But it's been, it's been a concern of mine. The main concern or problem that I've had with the pandemic is patients afraid to come into the office who really ought to come into the office. That's getting better now, but initially patients were not com coming in. And of course we were all locked down and they would want you to see rashes or show you their swollen joints. And it was hard to see that uh, on the lack of sophistication of the methodology we had for doing telemedicine but we did as best we could. And as far as I know, everything worked out okay for everyone, but it was really difficult trying to assess their physical exams uh, just by the um, lack of precision of the devices that either the patient had or we had or both. I think since the pandemic began, our biggest challenge has been to provide information in a timely manner to patients addressing all the you know, throughout the stages of the pandemic, first issues with what um, should they do with their medications, concerns for patients on immunosuppressants, of course, um, what to switch them to with the concerns of coming into the hospital for infusions and not really feeling comfortable doing so. 
And at each step of the progress in the pandemic, then it became more about vaccination than making sure our patients were able to get a proper appointment in a timely manner for that, which in New York was quite difficult initially when the, um, you know, when the vaccines first came out. Um, and I think, um, you know, being the uh, director for the lupus clinic, we had a big issue with medications from the get-go, with the misinformation with hydroxychloroquine being used as a potential treatment for the COVID-19 infection. Uh, a lot of our lupus patients suffer with that, and um, they miss their medications for weeks, two months, and it became a real challenge. Um, all patients started to uh, require, all insurances require that the patients would have some prior authorization for even that medication that was not the case prior to that. So that became a massive challenge for practices that had a big volume of lupus patients. So we had about 350 um, and everybody suddenly overnight needed prior authorizations and, and um, resources to make sure they got their medications on time. Yeah, and I felt like my practice ebb and flow just like the pandemic surges because one of the things that was like a huge stress was the volume of patient calls. We had like two to three times the number of patient calls. A lot of them are so worried, so concerned, and it was so hard to deliver accurate information because the guidance was changing so much. You don't know what's real, what's not real, and then, you know, the studies are coming out. So reassuring the patients you know, and giving them accurate information to me was was very difficult. But one of the things like you, I mean, that I was very worried about was that we're missing something. Like I was more worried about the patients who didn't call, the patients who didn't come in. I mean, they just dropped off the face of the earth. What happened? Did they die? We found out one lady did. And then a lot of them actually had stopped their medicines. So... Um, did you have a really difficult time trying to transition to telemedicine and how, how are you doing it now in your practice? I think in general, the way we practice medicine became challenged overnight uh, with switching to 100% telehealth um, in the midst of the pandemic. And that came, of course, with a lot of issues of patients not having the proper technology for it or not being tech savvy for it or um, completing some of the tests that were required after doing a telehealth encounter while still we need to be checking on labs. Um, they still needed to pick up their medications or um, formulate a proper plan that could um, work. Uh, concerns with immunosuppressants and the risk for infections made a lot of patients discontinue their treatments uh, again, sometimes uh, against medical advice, and that became quite challenging. Managing patients through a video platform, not having all the tests that we usually um, have at our, uh, at our as a resource to see how their disease is acting, how active things are, and just trying to um, assess all of those features through a video encounter um, became problematic. Yeah, you know, um, I think that, you know, I'm trying to, to learn to make the technology work for me and, you know, try to get it into a way that I feel comfortable with. Um, you know, I've tried to teach some patients to do a joint exam on themselves and, you know, kind of relay the information to me and, you know, take pictures of rashes and things like that, and, you know, just to to try to approximate, you know, an actual visit as, as well as I can. 
Um, you know, so the transition was was a little tricky. Um, I actually think now in, in some ways, you know, when we have, we're, you know, still having many patients, you know, come in kind of ebbs and flows, as you mentioned, but we do still have many patients doing telehealth visits and, you know, trying to, to have a, a live patient visit and then switch to a, a video visit has also been a bit of a challenge because I think it's a little bit uh, trickier for the patient to know what's going on. They know you're down the hallway talking to a nurse, you know, when they're in the office, they don't always know that when they're waiting online. Um, but I think that we're all getting used to the technology. And, and there are some aspects of it, you know, as I mentioned, that I think are, are really helpful. You know, I do have patients who, you know, normally could only make it in to see me, you know, once a year because of family obligations or because of distance. Um, and so it's actually been nice to be able to check in more regularly. So there are aspects of the te technology that I, that I certainly value. Um, how has the pandemic interrupted um, the research area for you? Yes, we, I think we've lost quite a bit. There's been delays amongst um, divisions and in all areas of, of clinical research. There's been, uh, of course, a priority to focus on COVID-related research, and that uh, thankfully worked quite fast and, and in a timely manner, but other areas have suffered and are still suffering and having delays in enrolling and just achieving things that would have otherwise been completed by now? So there have been a lot of challenges for research. Um, I do translational research and I also do clinical research. So, um, you know, really a lot of that came to a screeching halt uh, at the start of the pandemic. We certainly weren't bringing patients in to do research for safety concerns. Um, you know, we also uh, shut down the labs. We really had everybody transition to working from home. So that was, you know, very challenging. Um, fortunately, it gave me the opportunity to, you know, get some papers that had been kind of on the <laughs> the back the back burner for a while or kept getting shoved aside it let those come to the forefront and I was able to get some of those manuscripts together so you know certainly you know there's always so much to be done and, and luckily I was able to get a lot of those other things done as well um, but, you know I think as as things have gone on and, and our labs have opened up a little bit you know we still have pa uh, challenges with patient research um, you know, it's taken longer for our studies to get approved by the IRB because the IRB has their primary focus in, in uh, approving COVID-related studies, um, appropriately so. But it's, you know, made everything, you know, take a little bit longer, be, you know, become a little more challenging. And, you know, again, anytime we're doing any kind of clinical research, we want to make sure that, you know, we're thinking of patient safety first and foremost. And so, you know, just adding a new dimension. Well, the easy answer is all of all of the above. The trials for the most part shut down. I think there was only one trial that said if the patient wanted to continue, they could. And I think we had maybe two who continued. Uh, everything else uh, got shut down. Um, in terms of doing other kinds of, of, of research, we um, where we are, there's a database and some working uh, that you can do, but people didn't want to be in uh, conference rooms with other people who uh, they didn't know. They didn't want to travel to meetings and conferences as much. So it was really difficult getting things done. Uh, there was a lot of alternatives with the various video meetings that we've all done and they have been helpful. But in terms of the things that require people to get together and meet together, those were reduced greatly. Improved some after 
the vaccines. We made sure that people showed us their proof of vaccination. So we let monitors and uh, CROs uh, back into the office and we we are starting up our research again. But again, when we had the Delta that slowed it a bit and hopefully there won't be any other um, mutations that come along and, and frighten people. I think people have kind of had enough, uh, but uh, it's it's a whole new ball game. We've not, not ever dealt with that before. So we all tried to improvise as best we could and we're moving along. It's not that we're not making progress, it's just slowed way down. The pandemic has really highlighted, you know, how vulnerable we all are. And one of the critical issues that came to front was um, about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and race wars. What had been your experience? How how did you handle this with your patients and and even with your family? Like talking to, you know, your children, your neighbors about what has happened during the pandemic. I don't know that the pandemic itself, at least for me, changed the dynamic of. Uh, misogyny or racism, I think they were the same as they've always been. Maybe a little less because I found that many of the older physicians uh, uh, just in our area just wouldn't see patients. And so that uh, left many of the women, especially the younger women who were there who were willing to see patients. Uh, So I, I don't find, at least for me, that the uh, pandemic changed that. But I think the issues that have always been there have been the same. They haven't been less, but I don't think they've been necessarily more. I guess I'll begin at medical school, though I could uh, begin at, uh, they bust us to a high school that didn't want us there. And that was um, a very difficult situation. But medical school, they didn't want us there either. There were Uh, I think it was five African-Americans in my year out of a class of 150, and they did not want us there. And as I think of an example, one thing that happened the first year, I think it was doing pathology, and they graded us on a scale, and whoever got the highest grade, that's where the scale started at. And no one knew who it was, and everyone was trying to figure out who that was. And then, and we're all at lunch, and everyone was talking about it. And then someone came down, he was an African-American janitor, and he called out uh, my name. He said, who is that? And everyone was pointing to me, that's her, that's her. And he finally said, you got a 98% on the pathology exam, didn't you? And then after everyone's howling and laughing because I've been exposed, he says, you wonder how I know, don't you? And I said, yes, how, how do you know? And he pointed to his skin. He said, see this brown skin? He says, as as if I wasn't in the room. And he says, I want you to know that there was a debate out of uh, how you got that grade. And and he said, uh, they said, oh, well, she got honors in biochemistry. Now, he had to know this uh, from hearing it because he didn't know that. And they talked about other things. And the other half said, no, she must be cheating. And he said, just so you know, you're going to see a squad watching you afterwards. And sure enough, uh, for the next three exams, every time I looked up, there were two or three people staring right at me. And the insulting part of it 
is that, okay, who was I cheating off if my grade was that high and I wasn't cheating and no one else was treat, treated like that if they got a, a, a good grade. Um, so it was these kinds of things that were demeaning to us and I could give you many more. Or if I go to my residency years where uh, everyone would be invited to the uh, party for the, uh, for the um, section, but I wouldn't be. And it, it could have been because of my race. It could have actually been because of my faith. I'm not sure. But just think of how that would make someone feel. But in those days, no one cared about that. And there was no one to help you. No one to call up somebody at another institution or in Florida, the way I saw them doing it for my peers to, to, to make a road, to pave the road for them. So it was really very difficult, but you learn as uh, we were taught, you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps because there may not be anybody else to pull you. So you just keep doing what's right. You just keep doing uh, what you know to do right. Don't let those things uh, uh, get you down. So I never, ever plan to go into private practice, but because of a series of these kinds of things, I ended up going in private practice on my own. And I think I ended up uh, doing a lot more academic things in my practice that I may not have been able to do other otherwise. And you don't let these things overcome you, you have to overcome them. And I think this is true of suffering minorities from ages uh, back and ages forward. We have to keep going forward and not let these things destroy us. I think just pushing for inclusiveness, oftentimes the racism that occurs or the misogyny is occurring at the level of our peers where you may not be included. So I think what program directors need to do is to make sure that everybody is being included and everybody is feeling welcome and nobody is feeling left out by themselves. I know that historically, when we didn't have the focus as we do today, that sort of what uh, we experience. And I think at every level, there needs to be an effort to make sure that everyone feels equally welcome. Everyone is reached out to. The thing that happens with the so-called old boys network isn't always that people are necessarily trying to be uh, a misogynist, leave, leaving out the females, leaving out the um, uh, racial minority. It's just that they're so comfortable in their networks that they don't think of us and we're left out and they're not comfortable with us. They may not even speak the same language, so to speak, that we speak. And the program directors can work hard to make sure that inclusiveness is there until they get comfortable with us and know us as a person. And then our characters and our abilities will begin to speak for themselves. So that's one of the things I think that's needed is to reach out and get everyone included and comfortable with one another or as comfortable as we can make it. And then I, I think that leads to many connections that otherwise would not have happened. Now, burnout has been an, an all-time high during the pandemic. And there was a study that was put out last year and they found that more women than men have suffered from burnout. And it, this is across all specialties. I mean, surgery, internal medicine specialties, pediatricians, um, neurologists, I mean, 
women more so than men and a lot of them actually left their practice and um part of that is that women are kind of like in the sandwich generation where they have to take care of the children as well as their parents have you had any of that or like have you been affected by that oh yes um several colleagues um completely either dropped out of medicine or um you know, change jobs for, for more of advisor roles or um, working for pharmaceutical companies or um, just working part-time or just, you know, highly impacting the way they were practicing, practicing medicine due to the burnout. Um, so I, I got to see all of that. So it, it was quite a big uh, impact for, for healthcare. People retiring earlier than they expected to. I got to see some of that as well. Um, so, so yes. Unfortunately, um, this was a tough year for, for my parents as well. Um, you know, my family, uh, my parents um, and the rest of my extended family are back in Chicago. Um, so I'm on the West Coast. So it was actually very stressful um, to try to, you know, manage and try to help them with, with, you know, the illnesses that my dad was going through. He had several hospitalizations and, you know, the, those were stressful hospitalizations as well, because, you know, my mom wasn't able to be with him, wasn't able to know what was going on. And so, you know, I was doing my best, you know, from, from the opposite coast to try to help get them the information they needed and, and to be in, as involved as I, as I could be. Um, you know, whereas in normal times, I probably would have tried to, to actually go there and, and be there in person. So, you know, it was a challenging year um, from that perspective, perspective as well. Um, so, you know, adding that to the demands of, of having kids at home, um, you know, some of the days, you know, where I was doing primarily research, I'd be trying to do that from home as well. And, you know, at normal times, you know, you know, I'd be at work, I would be doing work while I was at work. And then I would come home and take care of my kids and family and then, you know, often go back to work. But, you know, it was much more discreet. Whereas now, you know, I could be in the middle of working on something and, you know, one of my kids would really need help with their Zoom. So I'd have to go, you know, stop what I was doing, run in there, come back. And, you know, and then on the flip side, sometimes it would be nine o'clock and I'd still be working. And, you know, all of a sudden we'd realize we needed to put something together for dinner. So I think the boundaries um, between work and home life really became very blurred. Um, and I think that, you know, really made made things much more stressful. So I'm trying to get better about really defining, you know, this is this is work time, this is home time. You're absolutely right, Dr. McMahon, because, you know, all of us are in different phases of our careers. We have children of different ages and the children, I mean, they're going to need us from from different um, angles. Like my daughters, they're 17 going to be 18 she's looking at colleges right now trying to apply for colleges doing college visits that's been a huge challenge because they really don't want us on campus during the pandemic um, and then my 14 year old just you know started um, high school she wants to be with her friends trying to keep her healthy and safe um, I mean thankfully all my children are vaccinated now and I do have a 10 year old and I enrolled him into the Moderna COVID study uh, vaccine study. So, so all my children, hopefully, knock on wood, are going to be a little bit protective. But, but it is difficult. Um, Dr. Schur and and Dr. Gerardino Pardia, could you share your experience with regards to your home life? Yes. So one of the things that happened was that you know school went virtual overnight, and for those with 
um, younger kids that really needed full assistance to to get through their regular school day, it uh, it became a big challenge initially. Uh, I mean, I think we were fortunate enough to have um, the support from our family members and um, just the community um, that had some resources for physicians in particular to help with those um, with those scenario and providing. Um, you know, childcare and assistance throughout the pandemic, but it was it was a clear change in in, in circumstances that were far from ideal um, for people that are working and, and especially in the medical field during a pandemic. Well, I don't have young children at home, but I have two disabled adults at home, and a lot of the services that were available for them prior was no longer available to them. We learned to adapt. We learned to do what we could at home and recognize the things that we could not do. For instance, home physical therapy. Uh, we just did the best we can with what uh, we can. Now, a, an upside was that I was home more and that helped with me being able to then pitch in and do th things that otherwise I couldn't do because I just had no time because I was working so many hours. So one of the good things about this is, is reminding me that perhaps I was working too much to begin with. But that was the main thing, the ancillary and support systems for the disabled came pretty much to a, a halt either because the services weren't offered or we didn't want strangers coming into the house and so we declined them.